Hello again, and welcome to episode 21 of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the Revelation Bible Study. This is our virtual church classroom podcast presented each week by Shiloh United Methodist Church and yours truly, Pastor Dan. We come to you from Jasper, Indiana, along with my daughter Bethany, to study the Bible together with you with the goal of knowing God's heart and mind with all of our hearts and minds. Our hope is that through this virtual Bible study, you will be able to participate more completely in the benefits of an active involvement in church community, but we genuinely hope that it will not serve as a singular experience for you. We want you to be involved in a community of believers. It's very important to us that this be a supportive activity for you and not your sole activity. And with that in mind, we take you to our time of worship as we present you with episode 21 of the Revelation Bible Study of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, recorded on September 2nd, 2018. psalm reading is psalm 22 psalm 22 should sound pretty familiar to most christians uh it is uh after all the words jesus spoke at least somewhat of the words uh that jesus spoke from the cross on the day of his death so this is psalm 22 written for the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning a psalm of david Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry to you. God, we hear these words as we go into our time of study of prophetic scripture. How apropos, Lord, that as we begin to study this prophetic scripture about the times Jesus predicted, that we would hear the prediction of his ancestor David, of the very words and activities surrounding his death on the cross, his redeeming death on the cross for us. Oh God, we praise you because you are trustworthy and true in all that you say and do. You spoke a long, long time before David, uh, through David, before Jesus came, and you said exactly what words would come out of his mouth, what words would be said by those who would mock him. You described the horrific scene of a crucifixion down to the details of the dogs licking the blood. You described how his hands were pierced, his feet were pierced. You describe prophetically in perfect detail how they gambled for his garment. Oh God, it is incredible. 
how you speak to us through the Bible. And it is our privilege to read your love letter to us, your message to us from outside of space and time. Therefore, we pray you help us as we go into your word to study this challenging topic that we're going to take on today. And uh, I pray your wisdom upon the teachers and the discussion leaders, as well as those who will listen. And I ask your blessings on all who listen in their lives in every way that they need you and seek you. And we do this for your glory and because we love you, Lord. Amen. I just want to give credit to the Psalms Project. I have been uh, using their music from YouTube for several weeks now and and uh, hopefully living within the appropriate guidelines of copyright protections and so forth. If, if you wonder why I only play little short snippets of their music and then direct you to their site for the full version, it is a way of maintaining the integrity of our program by not violating the copyrights of those people who have created this music. So I give you, you know, less than 30 seconds at a time of the song and then direct you to it so that you can hear the full version. I've really enjoyed these beautiful projects, uh, Psalms Project recordings, and uh, how they've taken every psalm and a variety of artists have put it to music. So very cool. And uh, now we're going to begin our episode uh, 21, episode 21 of the Revelation Bible Study, and today's topic is going to be a little bit of a diversion from the study of the book of Revelation itself. We're going to talk for the next two weeks about a couple of its key concepts and how we can better understand them. So Bethany's with me again, and we are, as I said, taking a little divert diversion from the scripture sort of as i say in the description we're sort of taking a diversion because we're really trying to support some of the uh implied things that are there in revelation that you have to do a little outside research to really uh get your mind wrapped around so i had bethany do some homework in preparation for today's uh, podcast because today this week we're going to talk about this episode is going to be about the harpazo or the rapture of the church and then next week, we're going to talk about the uh, next episode. We're going to talk about the 70th week of Daniel. So we're basically going to look at the prediction that Gabriel made to Daniel in the last two chapters of the book of Daniel, which will support what we'll do three episodes out where we come back to Revelation and we meet the Antichrist. 
or the coming world leader. So we're really trying to methodically let the the stage be set here so that you can really kind of grasp the significance of this. And of course, our fundamental premises is that this is true. Mm -hmm. Our premise is that the Bible is true and that it is best understood literally. Um, I have a beautiful piece of of listener mail that I want to read to us Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the episode today because it proves that... uh, that at least one of our listeners, and I know this is true of almost all, if not every single listener out there, is using their critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. But we have one who wrote some beautiful stuff to tell us just exactly how their critical thinking about this has changed the way they read Revelation. So that's a gratifying thing to look forward to. Stay tuned. But for now, the rapture. So, uh, Bethany, you know, before we start... Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the common things that you you know what are, what are the the sort of general things that come to mind when we talk about the rapture? I I think your experience and mine would be very different because of our age differences. But when I when I say we're going to talk about the rapture, what do you imagine that's about exactly? What do you think people think? Well, I have a personal thing with the rapture that I don't know if I want to share with everyone because it's making fun of me. So I think I'll just keep that to you. It's you guys making fun of me. <laughs> um, so every time I hear rapture, I think of a family in joke that has been going on since I was like 10. Um, well, I'll let you off the hook, okay? So when I was in high school... I dated this very pretty girl who was from a very uh, traditional church in Oklahoma, which where I'm from, where I came to Oklahoma after growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, and I was a strange anomaly to a lot of these people, and they really wanted to figure me out and get me saved. And it was a sweet thing because they really cared about mm-hmm. me. But I remember this wonderful, sweet, innocent girl saying that she had come home from school one day and her sister wasn't there and her dad wasn't there and everybody that she expected to be there was gone and she tried calling a couple of people and they didn't answer their phones and and she lived in a little small house out in the middle of the Oklahoma prairie and she looked around and there wasn't anything going on except wind in the weeds and she just said that she thought for a few minutes this might have been the rapture and she missed out. And so we've had a lot of fun with that joke over the years. Because one time I came home and no one was home. One time. And I didn't think it was the rapture because I was pretty sure I was going. Mm-hmm. I was just very confused. And then that you all proceeded to make fun of me for that for a long time. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's fine. Well. It was good natured. <laughs> but... I guess that a lot of people think the left behind kind of picture the the clothing pile on the ground. Yeah, yeah. When they think rapture. Yeah, like and I, every like just like cars driving themselves and yeah, stuff you know, like that. airplanes falling out of the skies. Yeah. yeah, you know, and and honestly, you know, I'm not saying any of that isn't plausible mm-hmm. but what troubles me is is that that like so many aspects of of ra- of the book of revelation and in particular the end times understanding which is the word eschatology means 
understanding the end times is basically what it means is, is our if theology is our understanding of god and uh, christology is our understanding of christ eschatology is our understanding of the end times so mm-hmm. these are just big words for a basic concept and so yeah when we talk about these end times things it so quickly gets sensationalized and uh, and you know it makes for really fascinating and spooky entertainment to imagine that a whole segment of the population is suddenly Vanishes. stolen away and just disappears and uh, and and it's not that that isn't what we're describing in fact uh, my favorite author on the topic refers to it as the most preposterous thing that christians believe and the only thing that makes it less preposterous is that it's true and and so when you tell people that that you believe that there is going to be a uh, day that will come without warning that will be sudden and unexpected Mm -hmm. where all of the followers of Christ will be swept away just literally in less than, you know, at the speed of light, they just are gone and they're in the presence of Christ. The word rapture means steal away. It comes from a word uh, in Greek that is uh, harpazo. Harpazo means steal away. And then the Latin version of it is where we get the word rapture because it's uh, rapunai. And, and so we, we get the variation or the anglification of the Latin to make the word rapture. So when people say, well, that's not in the Bible, well, actually it is. It's just lost in translation. But the idea of a stealing away is actually the word harpazo is used frequently in scripture and it always describes the same thing it describes when jesus ascended to heaven it describes uh enoch's taking away uh, it describes uh, uh paul when he went into the third heaven and it yeah, describes thinking, what john did when he was taken up into heaven you know i was thinking about jesus and enoch especially because we like we've seen rapture before yeah so it's not so yeah and, i don't and, think we have to speculate too hard on what it might look like because we've yeah so it's not it's not an uncommon concept in scripture it's just that that if we're ignorant we don't recognize that simply because we you know it that's like assuming that the bible's always been written in american english you know (laughs) and and the fact is the bible has been translated to american english from languages that are far more complex than american english and sometimes we really suffer because of that Mm -hmm. because because in in certain vocabulary and the primary languages of the bible are basically greek and latin and i say that knowing that it was originally the hebrew is the main language okay so don't get me wrong when i say the primary language is greek and latin what i'm driving at is is the language we use Mm -hmm. the where we get our english version of the bible is from greek and latin and where that's why you see a lot of um greek seeming words even in the english translation yeah yeah so because that was you know the language of the the bible of the time yeah the language of the bible is hebrew okay and then around 70 to 90 years before the time of christ uh even the jewish people were unfamiliar with hebrew they didn't speak hebrew 
in those days, the language was Greek, and, and people forget that before the Romans, there were the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks actually left behind a lot more mm -hmm. cultural influence in the Middle East and in ancient Persia and places like that uh, in, in many respects. And the Romans just sort of adapted it. And so what the Greeks did is the Greeks, the, and the Jewish scholars will argue that the Greeks adapted the Jewish. So, so basically the Greeks came in and they took away the language of Hebrew and replaced it with Greek. And by the time the scholars who created what's called the Septuagint, which really means like the 70. Mm -hmm. So this supposedly 70 scholars or 72, it kind of depends on who you ask were tasked with writing the Hebrew to Greek. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible that Jesus and his contemporaries would have been reading in those days of his earthly ministry was Greek. And that would eventually be translated into Latin uh, because of the Romanizing of the world and because of people like St. Jerome who took the Vulgate or created the Vulgate, which is the Latin vernacular. Uh, and so, so basically, um, uh, St. Jerome, you know, he, he hides in the catacombs under the churches in uh, the, the holy places in Bethlehem. And he's hiding there to get away from himself because he's pretty, you know, he's, he's really into his flesh and all the entertainment that he can get for his flesh, drinking women, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you know. And so to, to sort of right his ship, he goes into seclusion and he translates the Greek Septuagint into Latin. Mm -hmm. And then all the letters and things that were communicated at the time of the New Testament's writing, they were generally written in Greek. And those eventually get translated to Latin. So that's what I mean when I say we are translating mostly latin and greek into our english yeah and then when we really really want to understand what it means we go back to the hebrew and then we find out that we don't have a word for that because hebrew is not only a language of words and letters but it's a language of word pictures mm -hmm. so that the letters of the hebrew alphabet are really and this is this is why some people refer to hebrew as the language of god because the letters of the hebrew alphabet also have numeric values so they have numeric values they are pictures a, a hebrew letter is a picture mm -hmm. and so you know people say well, why didn't they use vowels and a lot of people don't know that that didn't happen but it they didn't write hebrew with vowels and that's because they didn't have to because they could put the syllables together and the combination of the numeric value and the pictures and the sequence of the letters told you everything you needed to know mm -hmm. And so when we, when we read in the Bible that God said his name was I am, and that translates from the Hebrew Yehweh or Yahweh or whatever, we don't know because there's no vowels. Mm -hmm. So we just know it's Y-H-W-H. And nobody knows how to pronounce that. But if you look at it in Hebrew, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what it really means is the name. And it's the name we don't say because it's too holy to say it. And that's why Hebrew people do not, Hebrew-speaking people and Jewish people of tradition, they don't like to say the word God. And they don't even write it. They write G space D because it seems inappropriate. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so all that to say that 
the concepts that we're going to talk about in the form of the, the concept of, of Hebrew, uh, excuse me, the idea of the rapture. First, we have to understand the word rapture is our Anglific- Anglification of a Latin, Latinification <laughs> of the Latinizing of the, the Hebrew Greek translation. And it all goes back to this, this, uh, word that is translated in Greek, harpazo, the stealing away. Mm-hmm. I kind of went on a roundabout trip there, but it's important for people to understand the foundations mm-hmm. here. Okay? And that is not an uncommon concept in Scripture. Yeah. So, we've mentioned a few times that there are these lampstands in the throne room of God at the beginning of the opening of the seals and the tribulations. And that we understood from the very beginning of our reading of Revelation that the lampstands represented the churches. Right. Because that was the first thing we covered in our series. Mm-hmm. We're on episode 22 now, but back when we were doing episodes 3, 4, or whatever, we were reading about the churches. So I gave you the challenge to go back to the letters to the churches. Yes. Because you had become quite the expert on those churches. <laughs> Historically speaking, anyway. And I wanted to challenge you to see if you could identify any of the churches that might be taken out before there was a tribulation. Mm -hmm. And then what about the other churches? Okay. And remembering that the seven churches are not only pre-existing churches, they are also types of churches. And I know a scholar, one particular scholar, who takes it right down to, he says, one of them represents Protestants, one of them represents Catholics, you know, and one represents, like, evangelicals. I don't know if I want to go there or not, but I want you to see if you can help us identify a church that is being taken out of the suffering before it ever actually Mm -hmm. hits. I mean, the really bad suffering, because we all suffer. Yeah. Well... You want to take one guess about which church gets taken out before anything happens? At least it sounds that way. Well, (laughs) it might be the ones that have the really good beefsteak and cheese sandwiches. Right, right. The beefsteak and cheese sandwiches, yes. I'm sorry, that is so irreverent. Well, it's they know what you mean, I bet. The Church of Philadelphia. Right, so Philadelphia... The scripture says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on all the inhabitants of the world to test, or all of the world to test the inhabitants, which sort of sounds like they're probably not going to have to worry about the bad stuff. Um, yeah. It also kind of sounds, so, like, every one of them says, like, to who, him who is victorious, I will. And then it has a list of, like, what's going to happen. Yeah. And the Philadelphia one says, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. I will write on them the name of my God. And I'm paraphrasing, but the name of my God, the city of God, and my new name. Which kind of sounds a little bit like being sealed. Which has come up in our recent discussions. Yeah. Um. So, I, yeah. Okay. But that's the only one that sounds like it's definitely set. So, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. is, as a type, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. is the church. Uh, so what were the characteristics of Philadelphia that made them so certain to be taken out beforehand? They they were doing some things right. They were they were doing everything. They were right. the one that Jesus didn't have any complaint against. Yeah, them. they were. I mean, yeah, like they're the ones that he said he was going to make those people who were not awesome, who were mistreating them fall at their feet and acknowledge that Jesus loved them. Yeah. So they were doing everything right. They, yeah. So the, so the idea, yeah. And so the idea that certain Christians Mm -hmm. were going to be taken out of the extreme suffering that was coming, you know, and there's a concept. I don't want to stick it stuck on it because we can come back to it, but but everything we've described in this time of tribulation, that is the time when the seals are open, that is like really awful. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that Christians don't suffer persecution right now. It doesn't mean that we as, as, uh, as uh, you know, if we're Philadelphia Christians, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't suffer. But it won't be the horrific suffering that the yeah. people are going to witness and experience during these terrible trials of these seals yeah. judgments. So, yeah, it's a it's a totally different creature there. Now, was there any church that you found that was guaranteed to go through the hard stuff or type of church? Well, yes and no. Okay. Because I don't know. Because you know that my soft spot is for Smyrna. Mm-hmm. I love Philadelphia. I think it's great. But the church at Smyrna, just really, I don't know. I just really, they're small but mighty too. And they, they get stuck dealing with a lot. Because it says that they're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. So, but it also says to him who's victorious, you will not be hurt in the second death. So it sounds like they're going to be dealing with something mm-hmm. for a while but they're going to end up where they need to be. So I don't know. I don't know on Smyrna. Now I'm trying, yeah, I, you know, I'm trying to do this in a practical uh, sort of, of uh, chronological order, but, mm-hmm. but I have to take an aside here and say, assuming that we uh, are going to see a rapture where before the tribulation begins, certain kind of believers are taken out then what you could be hearing about Smyrna is a uh, there because because there's going to be different kinds of so so for example there's different kinds of saints all right they're Old Testament saints Mm -hmm. these are people who were assured of heaven and that's really what the word saint means now in, in the Roman Catholic tradition it takes on a little bit different meaning because the the temporal church decides whether a person is worthy to be uh, considered to be a, a saint. saint yeah. And that's because they have a thing called purgatory. So their assumption is, is everybody goes to purgatory, but a handful of people are just so darn good, they're going right to heaven. They're not going through purgatory, they're going straight to heaven. And so they have this beatification. Yeah, I'm not criticizing that, except to say that it's it's our belief as as Christians of the Bible and you know maybe Protestants I don't know but our belief is basically that that uh, if you're assured of heaven then you're a saint because that's the literal definition of a saint and so we tend to think that that we're New Testament saints people who have accepted Christ's salvation and then live in that salvation and die in that salvation mm-hmm. are assured of heaven and therefore they are saints 
so with that in mind, we talk about the Old Testament saints. These are people who are assured of God's blessing and sure, assured of, of a place at God's side in heaven during the Old Testament times. They just missed Jesus. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is, is that there's a good example of this in John the Baptist. Because when Jesus says of John the Baptist, there's never been a greater person than John the Baptist who was born of a womb. In, mm-hmm. in other words, he's saying there's never been a greater human being than John the Baptist. And yet, you people, and he's referring to the children of the Church of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talking about the people who come after yeah. Jesus will do even more things than John the Baptist. So so basically what he's saying is, is John was as great as any Old Testament saint can be. He mm-hmm. was the number one Old Testament saint. He, they, they, he was the number one draft pick of the Old Testament. He is the best Old Testament saint that yeah. there ever was. But he's saying that in the New Testament times, it's a totally different scale. And uh, that's a really profound thing for Jesus to say. So he's already predicting that we have a unique relationship with God because of Jesus. And so we have what we call the New Testament saints, but then there's also the tribulation saints. And the tribulation mm-hmm. saints will be the ones, and this is what that whole Left Behind series focused mm-hmm. on for uh, book after for book after book. a lot book. of books. But it was basically about the people who came to faith in Christ during the tribulation. the tribulation. So they were tribulation saints. And, and the Bible tells us in Revelation that there's actually a different sort of future for them than for us and so the church of the new testament the the church the people who come to faith in christ before the tribulation starts and after the old testament ends are in a unique group there that's the lampstand group that's basically what we're being told Mm -hmm. and in the throne room of of god we have at least 12 of the elders Mm -hmm that represent the Old Testament. And then we have 12 elders who represent the New Testament. And we have the lampstand. And so all these pictures are being put in front of us in this throne room of God, of Command Central of God, saying all of this is here. Mm -hmm. And then this lamb unrolls the seal, or breaks the seals and unrolls the scroll with the plan of the execution of God's wrath. Yeah. So, clearly, there's an indication that somebody is going to be out of the, uh, or, or taken out of the earthly realm before the, the seals are broken. So, Jesus says in uh, the Gospel of John, and I read this in funerals all the time, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it weren't so, I'd tell you. And I have gone to prepare a place for you so that I can come back and get you and take you there. Mm-hmm. Well, what does he mean by that? You know, it, it doesn't sound like, you know, he's just sort of just piddling around up there. And here's what it really drives at. And this is, this is the next really important concept of the harpazo. You have to understand the traditional Jewish concept of marriage. And by that I mean the kind of marriages that Jesus witnessed. Um, When Jesus went to the wedding supper at Cana in Galilee, his first recorded miracle, and his mom said, hey, I know you can fix this. Take (laughs) care of it. And uh, 
And from what I understand, they're still selling wine to this day at Cana of Galilee that they swear Jesus made. I'm, hey. a, little, I'm a little suspicious. But anyway, seriously, you know, so Jesus was very familiar with these weddings. And he himself used the, the uh, visual imagery of Jewish weddings to describe a lot of what he was going to do. So in order to really understand what Jesus is driving at when he describes these things, you have to understand the the nature of a a Jewish traditional marriage. It started with the betrothal or the ketubah and it was established as a sort of marriage covenant. In other words, um, the the groom finds out from the father of the bride what the price is going to be. And then he demonstrates his ability to pay that price. And remembering our study of Ruth, you understand that in order to uh, buy a bride who has been lost, so, so looking at Ruth, we have the example of this uh, woman who is a, a, through marriage, a descendant of a fellow who lost his title to his land, who lost his wealth, and because of his debts and then he dies and Ruth his daughter-in-law also is without a husband she comes back and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer he's the one who is allowed to pay off her debt if he wants to if he can pay the price he has to prove that he has the price to pay it off and then he has to follow through on the deed and it comes through this marriage so he establishes what is owed he finds out uh you know he offers the to pay the price he pays the price and then he seals the deal by marrying her and consummating the marriage and in that respect it's a done deal mm -hmm. okay so the first thing you understand about jewish weddings is that that's the order of things that the price is established and then the bridegroom, having made this covenant with the bride's family, then says, okay, honey, I'll see you sometime. And then he goes away, goes back to his father's house, and he prepares a place for her. And he literally would probably build an addition onto his father's house where he and his wife were going to live. And you got to imagine this young man who's, you know, taking on the family business. He's working with his father every day. And the idea is, is that he's of marrying age right now, and it's time to do his part to extend the family into the future, carry on the family business, the family line, the name, and all that. And this is very Jewish. And so he builds an addition onto Dad's house, and that's where he and his wife are going to live. So he prepares a place for her. Meanwhile, she's back home knitting and getting all of her you know, dowry and her, her hope chest all filled up with goodies. And maybe you've heard Jesus talk about how if they brides had known when the groom was coming, they would have had their lamps filled with oil and their wicks trimmed. Mm -hmm. In other words, one of the things the bride is supposed to do after the deal has been struck is be ready because she doesn't know when the groom is going to come. And yeah. so she's supposed to be ready. And this is what we call the doctrine of imminency, which means that it's inevitably going to happen, but we don't know when. Yeah. 
And there's a lot of variations that sound like that word that don't mean the same thing. We're not talking about an eminent professional who's very famous. And, you know, we're talking about the, the doctrine of imminency, which means the doctrine of expectancy, but not knowing when. And so the bride is told by Jesus, we're told this, to have our lamps ready and our stuff ready to go. In other words, have our house in order and be ready and watching yeah. for the coming. This is why Jesus said, when those times come, look up, for your redemption is nigh. Redemption's on the horizon. You know, um, it's, it's all clear statement about this Jewishness of a wedding. And so basically what would happen then in a traditional Jewish wedding, and I want you to imagine that, that uh, had Joseph and Mary gone through the traditional thing, one day, Joseph, and it was kind of a game that the groom and the groomsmen played, is uh, they would come and they would send hints, you know, they would kind of let her know that they'd, through signs and signals, he would let her know that he was getting really close to being ready. But he would talk in secret with his father and his groomsmen about when he was going to go. And it was more fun to do it at night because you could be sneakier at night. And so... He would come in the night and they'd be blowing horns and they'd be banging tambourines and things and he would come for his wife. And he would take her out of her mother's home, her father's home, and take her back to that house that he had prepared and they would go in and consummate the marriage. Then after they were done consummating the marriage, and I'm not trying to be crude, but this is, this is what makes it real, and if you think about it in the Jewish sense especially, then they'd come out a little bit later and there'd be a party. And it would be a big party that would last for days. I'm thinking that if this was still the tradition, we'd have a lot less bridezillas. Uh, yeah. Because they wouldn't be in charge. They'd That's have no right. control. That's right. And if men were doing it, they'd just say, eh, I guess I better go get her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Weddings would be very different. Yeah. So... You see how this concept is described, mm -hmm. and so much of it described by Jesus in the New Testament. The idea being that there is a bride who has been purchased. So Jesus has purchased the bride, and he has said, I will come mm -hmm. and get you and take you to my father's house. That's mm -hmm. what he means. So when he says, I've prepared a place for you in my father's house, what he's saying is, you're my bride. I've paid the price for you. I'm going to come, but you're not going to know when. Well, if the idea of the harpazo or the snatching away was somehow tied to the middle of the tribulation or even the end of the tribulation, then we would know when it was coming, right? Yeah. Because we'd see the things that have been... So, so basically the idea is that, that the time of the tribulation and the great judgment is one of the most thoroughly described yeah. timelines in the whole entire Bible. So the devil, everybody on earth is going to know that this is exactly what's going on because it will happen as it was described in Scripture. Yeah, when the seals start popping. So how would this idea of a bridegroom coming to get his bride in the middle of the night without warning, how, how would that be even plausible that would make jesus sound like kind of a nut and yeah. of course you know there's the famous c.s lewis statement that basically says if he if he called himself the son of god and he knew he wasn't then he's a liar if he called himself the son of god and he wasn't then he's a lunatic 
or he calls himself the son of God because he is the son of God. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same way, he would not say, I'm coming for you unless he's lying, yep. a lunatic, or he really is coming for us. And so there's every reason to believe that he's coming and that he's coming before the tribulation that is so thoroughly described, mm-hmm. which means that the Smyrna, or excuse me, the Philadelphia type Christian is almost certainly going, is certainly going to be stolen away, snatched away before that time. Then you go to the idea that is described by the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians. And this is, this is the most telling thing. I know I'm doing most of the talking, but I've been researching this hard for the last week or two, as you know. So when we look at this idea of, of uh, this literal snatching away, it's, it's um, Paul, the apostle, describing it in the letter, second letter to the Thessalonians. And the idea is really very straightforward. The people in Second Thessalonians thought that maybe Paul had misled them because they were seeing their members of their church die and buried and then not being stolen away. They were expecting the second coming was so, well not even the second coming because the second coming is one thing, the rapture is another. They were expecting something like the rapture because they couldn't understand why people were dying and going to the grave when it seemed clear to them that they were going to get snatched away any time now and not see death. And so, in fact, there's places in Scripture where it's clear that, uh, that, that the apostles have had to say to them, stop staring at the sky and get to work because there's stuff to do. Yes, he's coming any time, but don't stand there looking at the sky. We don't know when this is going to happen. And so in you the need second... need to be busy doing stuff before he gets here. Yeah, so in the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is basically saying, guys, I know that you've been misinformed and you've been told that I lied to you, but I did not lie to you. What I said was is that some will sleep and some will be awake when he comes. And he'll come like a thief in the night and in the twinkling of an eye, which is really the speed of, the speed of light, okay? So if whatever the fastest you can go at light speed, that's how fast it's going to happen. One will be standing in the field. One will be taken away. Dead will rise first and then the living. Mm -hmm. So Paul's saying, don't fret. Just because they died doesn't mean that they won't also be stolen away. It's just that they'll go first and they have died in Christ. And so they'll go from their grave to his presence and that means that they'll be just like Jesus was after his resurrection. They'll go from bones and dust in the grave to resurrected, physically present with Jesus in the speed of light. And then at the speed of light, those who are alive will follow and will be translated from our earthly bodies to our resurrection bodies in the trip. Mm-hmm. So... It's going to be like beaming up to the Enterprise, and when you get up there, you got a resurrection body. Yeah. It's going to be like that. Superhero. On, only super light fast, you know. Also, um, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking that if, given today's culture and the popularity of certain types of movies and films, I have a feeling that there are going to be people who think it's the zombie apocalypse, not the rapture. If there's a bunch of disturbed graves, 
Well, not only that, but then there. I mean, be there may these, not be disturbed graves, I guess, but there'll also be these crazy creatures unleashed right. on the earth. They so. all think it's like the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, um, literally something. all hell breaking loose, <laughs> and they don't even know the the depths of that. But so finally, then on the topic of the harpazo or the snatching away, and I'm just scratching the surface. There is probably three hours worth of things I could tell you about how we can believe that the church is going to be stolen away. But then the last thing to say about that is that um, if Jesus hasn't given us a special reward for having been obedient and faithful and accepted the good news when we heard it, then, then really, you know, what's the benefit? And I don't mean that in a, in a mean way. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that the idea of the church being protected somehow and reserved against this terrible time of judgment upon the earth is the reward for accepting that you were worthy of the same judgment, but you were spared by the redemption that was offered through Jesus Christ. I mean, the idea is that's what makes the New Testament church unique Mm -hmm. in all of these others. They, They play a special role, and we will have a special expectation. And so the challenge then to the ones who are listening is, is, you know, how do you know Jesus? How do you really know him? Because, because the only way you can really be certain is if you just look at how Philadelphia did things. Because there's the one that he says doesn't have a thing to worry about. And, and, and don't before you panic, just realize that the main thing you've got to do is just put your faith in Christ. And understand that there's nothing about you that makes you worthy of this exemption from tribulation. But it's your savior who makes you worthy of the exemption i have a thought slash question well it's time for you to talk a little bit anyway (laughs) all seven lampstands are there in the throne room right it says so so the thought i'm having i guess a question but the thought i'm having is that even if the other church's report cards weren't amazing somebody from every church made it if each Lampstand represents each church. So the good news is, is that even the ones that don't get stellar report cards, someone in, someone that are, so people that are representatives of those churches are still going to make it. Like, they're still getting there. Yeah. So they're still answering, you know, the parts where he's saying, you better repent and get back to doing right. Otherwise, I'm going to remove you. Because if Ephesus says he's going to come and remove the lampstand from its place if they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing he didn't remove the lampstand because there's seven lampstands in the throne room. Right. Now, that's a really that's a really good point. And, and I guess that's what we have to keep in mind. Uh, in fact, I was telling you something the other day. Um, I'll probably regret having this recorded uh, <laughs> for posterity, but but I was telling you the other day that as I was studying for today's podcast and next week's, I was thinking, you know, in a way, God has made me sort of a sleeper agent. <laughs> and and I thought that was weird, I know, to put it that way. And that's why you're chuckling. But, you know, what I was... Because I was picturing a KB, KGB Yeah, agent. I mean, a, you know, a sleeper agent is one that just sort of lives next door and you don't really see that they're any different. But I started thinking how... I came into the United Methodist Church, I came into the United Methodist clergy, 
and I did all the things you do to become an ordained clergy, but I'm not suggesting by saying this that ordained clergy are inherently wrong or that the United Methodist Church is wrong, but what we know about the United Methodist Church and all major mainline denominations is that they become very corrupt in a lot of ways. And they become focused on very worldly things and very worldly views and their leaders are very worldly in their mindset. But down in the ranks, there are sleeper agents. There are pastors who are true believers. There are pastors and members who really believe the Bible is true and it's better taken literally. Mm -hmm. And we catch a lot of flack from our highly educated and intelligent colleagues who are very worldly. And they tend to think that we're, you know, too fundamental to be of any use to the denomination. And then in their own way, they have just said what the problem is, is what makes them think I want to be of any use to the denomination anyway. I want to be of use to the Lord. I want to be of value in the lives of those he's mm -hmm. given me to serve. So that's what I meant when I said I feel like a sleeper agent. And I was thinking about that as I was studying this. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are churches and denominations and certain kinds of Christians who aren't entirely going to miss the boat, but among them will be those who are Philadelphia-type Christians, and there will be those who are Ephesus-type Christians, and it's going to be harder for them. Mm -hmm. That's really what it boils down to, yeah. and so what I want for our friends is that they could all just be swept away with all the hope and joy before the really terrible things hit. And we're busy having our uh, lamb's bridal supper up there in paradise with Jesus while all this stuff's going down. And that is the promise that basically comes. So, you know, and the thing you have to keep in mind about the harpazo, the idea of a stealing away, a rapture, is simply that it's going to happen, but we don't know when. And so what we need to be doing is being disciples, seeking disciples, and trying to bring some, to bring some picture or image of the church or the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, through the church on earth, there will be a representation of the kingdom of God on earth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's Jesus' words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're supposed to be doing when Jesus comes. And that is the promise that we call the rapture and the harpazo. Do you have any other thoughts on that subject? Not really. I kind of did most of the talking this time, but I've been in a position this week, what with me being a professional clergy person and all, to spend extra moments studying that topic. And you, on the other hand... I've been busy this week. ...have been week. very, very busy this week. And so I kind of, you know... But, but you, know, you know, you also serve a vital purpose because you're like the people out there who wish they could comment <laughs> and then realize that they're listening to a recording and they can't comment. <laughs> and uh, I mean, they can. Like they yeah. can talk to their recording. That's fine. They, they there's can, nothing weird about that. But they they just won't get an answer. Right. <laughs> so you're sort of there to be that voice 
uh, in some cases that says, hey, uh, what about? <laughs> so, well, all right. So what do you think? Is there anything else we can say about this right now? This is, this is a, you know, 40-minute overview yeah. of the topic of the rapture. What I recommend is that you do your homework, study scripture, um, you know, and understand that this is not an absurd, not nearly as an absurd idea as we're tempted to think it is. And sometimes the harshest critics of a pre-tribulation rapture are Christians. And uh, I'm not sure why that is. I think it's because we're so afraid of the world saying we're silly. You know, but have you ever noticed how silly the world sounds some, sometimes? Yes. I mean... Just go on Twitter and read the latest Twitter nonsense or watch the news. Sure. And considering the fact that, that for example, the people who argue for evolution, I'm not, this isn't about that. What I'm saying is, is that they sound as nutty religious extremists mm -hmm. about their religion of evolution as any Christian extremists that they would criticize. Mm -hmm that neither one really presents you with the valid argument for what they believe. Rather, they just assume that anybody who doesn't believe like they do is stupid. Mm -hmm. And we're certainly not talking about that. We're talking about an informed belief in something that sounds so good it can't be true, except that it is. And I think that even if all of the rapture stuff is like heady and weird for you, the important thing too is what you said about being New Testament saints. Yeah. No matter what happens, we're assured of heaven. That's right. That's right. Well, okay. Uh, let's turn it over to our listener mail. So uh, uh, hold your breath for a few seconds while I put in a nice little segue piece of music. It won't be me. got one piece of really fascinating I mean fascinating mm -hmm. listener mail this week and and I, I just have to say uh, thank you for writing like this um, Bethany and I are both holders of master's degrees and I can tell you with absolute certainty that your critical thinking skills and your ability to write critically is on par with anybody I've ever read or written for in my upper level undergraduate studies and my master's. So what I'm saying is, is that Jenny, you express yourself critically as well as any academic scholarly paper writing upper level student can write. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. this is really well-conceived and written critical thinking. And it adds to, to our study and it in, makes, a, in a yeah, beautiful her, way. Her comments make us all better. Yes. And so we just really, really congrat congratulate you on that. And uh, so here is uh, her message to us after last week. She says, I've been catching up on the last two podcasts and wanted to grab a moment to comment though I haven't quite finished episode 20 yet. First, thank you for showing me how to listen to those 
these through the podcast app. That has worked perfectly. And secondly, this was one of those episodes where I wish uh, this were a traditional Bible study so that one could ask questions and comment right in the flow of conversation. Because this was so interesting. It's a very new mental exercise for me to consider revelation from a literal scientific, astrological, and geological point of view. But I'm really enjoying this. I do not find it preposterous to consider that dark spiritual beings might in fact be held deep in the Earth's crust. What causes us to sort of cringe away from saying those things out loud, so to speak, is that we live in a postmodern society that rejects as nonsense anything it cannot measure. Considering the vastness of reality, this is a startlingly arrogant position to take. <laughs> but I suppose it feels prudent and safe. I agree that we have a kind of spiritual group knowledge, even if it is largely subconscious, that the images of defining spiritual reality do surface in us, in stories and myths and expectations, even though we might not know the source. For example, the passion of Christ and the incarnation stir human souls even when they see glimpses of it in just in nature. However, I think by this chapter in Revelation, it might be interesting to consider that every heart that had any opening towards God, any softness, would be those who had been converted by the evangelists, and the rest might be those who would harden their heart further, even as the physical reality around them becomes more and more distorted. Mm -hmm. I think of that evil scientist in C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, Jenny, I read that one too, <laughs> who had convinced himself that there was no reality at all and that his feelings meant nothing, so that all conclusion, uh, all the conclusion of, at the conclusion of the book, even as the walls of the room were burning around him, he denied that he was feeling pain or even that he had a desire to escape. I always felt that gave an interesting clue into the minds of those who end up choosing life without God. Well said, Jenny. Yes, thank well, you, Jenny. Well said. That, that is just a really outstanding post. Uh, and thank you for such excellent critical thinking and, and uh, well-constructed writing. Um, this is inspiring to us. So hopefully all of the, who, all the people who are listening will also be inspired and will find uh, even more interesting comments. And you know, one day we'll have to have a sort of family reunion for all the <laughs> listeners of the podcast where we actually do meet in place in one place together. Yeah. And, and you can actually ask your questions and have your conversation face to face. So we're going to work on that. But, uh, Bethany, do you get any, any messages this week you want to talk about or anything? No, I don't have any listener mail this week. All right. Well, folks, we want to thank you for listening. Remember, you can, uh, uh, you can learn more about uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church at shilohum.org. You can also uh, join the Facebook discussion that Jenny was part of by visiting our Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. If you're not a member, you'll have to request to be a member, and I will accept your invitation, of course, or I will send you an invitation and accept your request. So all you got to do is contact us through the Facebook page, and we'll make it happen. But uh, we really love being with you, and we really hope that you are blessed. And so for now, God bless you, and goodbye. Bye.